Hi, and welcome to Infectious Info. This podcast is brought to you by the Infectious Disease Working Group, IDWG, out of the University of Toronto. The Infectious Disease Working Group is a collaboration of graduate students that aims to educate the public and raise awareness around infectious disease. You can follow us on social media, at Infectious Info, on Instagram and Twitter. And if you like what you hear, subscribe to this podcast and share your thoughts with us on social media. Thanks for listening. Hi, folks, and thanks so much for listening to this bonus episode of the IDWG podcast. My name is Kelty Hamilton, and I'll be your host this week as I interview Dr. Ben Chan. Dr. Ben Chan has been an amazing advocate for vaccine efficacy on social media, and I'm really excited to kind of talk with him about the AstraZeneca vaccine, as well as his experience working frontline as a physician during the pandemic. This episode of IDWG was produced and edited by Andrew Oliphant from Ryerson University. Before we get into this week's episode, we did want to make everyone aware of all of the different vaccines that have been approved for use in Canada, as well as their efficacy and other information. My colleague in IDWG, Kira Morrison, is going to tell us a little bit more. Canada has approved four different vaccines as of March 31st, 2021. The Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine were approved by Health Canada in December 2020. They are two-dose vaccines and require storage at freezer temperatures. The Pfizer vaccine has shown 95% effectiveness, and the Moderna vaccine has shown 94% effectiveness at preventing COVID-19 symptoms in infected individuals. Johnson & Johnson produced a third vaccine that has been approved by Canada. It is a one-shot vaccine and requires storage at refrigerator temperatures. It has shown a 66% effectiveness at preventing COVID-19 symptoms in infected individuals. AstraZeneca is the fourth approved vaccine. It is a two-dose vaccine as well and has shown between 62 and 70% effectiveness at preventing COVID-19 symptoms. These vaccines were tested in different ways and during different points of the pandemic, meaning their effectiveness at preventing symptomatic infections is not directly comparable. The measure that should primarily be considered in how effective these vaccines are is their ability to prevent severe outcomes. In this way, these four vaccines are all 100% effective at preventing hospitalization and death. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. If you still have questions regarding vaccines, AstraZeneca, where to get vaccinated, etc., please look at all the information in this episode's bio. We put lots of great resources and some accounts to follow that can help you navigate your way through vaccination in Ontario and Canada. Hi, Dr. Chan. Thank you so much for joining us. We are so excited to have this episode with you and really just talk about the AstraZeneca vaccine and a few other things as you are a medical doctor and have been for a while. Um, but before we get into everything, could you maybe introduce yourself and give us a bit of your background um, as an academic, as a doctor, etc.? You know, well, anyway, it's, um, uh, it's a pleasure to join you uh, today. Uh, my name is Ben Chan. I am assistant professor at U of T at the Institute for Health Policy Management and Evaluation. I also work uh, part-time as a rural emergency department physician. Uh, most of my time is spent working with the World Bank on uh, health system strengthening projects in low and middle income uh, countries. And um, so global health and quality improvement have been very much my areas of uh, interest. Uh, prior to um, 
my work in global health, I was the CEO of the Saskatchewan Health Quality Council, and then later the Ontario Health Quality Council. Wow, that is quite the list of accomplishments. The main reason we want to talk to you today um, is because you made these great posts on Twitter and LinkedIn about the AstraZeneca vaccine. Before we dive into that, you are also a medical doctor, so we would really like you to explain why the AstraZeneca vaccine is getting some heat and why the specific type of cerebral clots we're seeing is more noticeable or rare than the normal clots that we would see in the general population. The vaccine has made lots of headlines in the last few uh, months, and in many cases, they've been unfortunate uh, headlines uh, in terms of the the rollout of the vaccine. I think we all know that it's been a bumpy ride. The whole process of how we've rolled out these uh, vaccines says a lot about how we all try and do our best um, to bring new treatments to uh, the people that we serve. And uh, every step of the way, there are going to be trade-offs in how we do that and do that in the most effective way. So, of course, whether it's a new vaccine or a new drug or a new surgery, we want to test it out on uh, a certain number of people through rigorous, randomized, controlled uh, trials. And uh, and I think our medical community has, I think, uh, you know, very, very strict and, and well thought out process uh, for that. But then there are limits to what those types of trials can do um, because we do it on a certain number of patients. If you were to do it on on millions of people um, at the same time, you could be waiting a very, very long periods of time before you get to anything approved and then the population doesn't have the chance of benefiting for it. So that's why I think often we try to make these trade-offs and this happens with other uh, drugs. We put it through the randomized controlled trials. We get a reasonable sense that we've... Um, ruled out the most uh, frequent uh, and serious risks. But then when we go to post-market surveillance, we put the the technology of the drug uh, or the vaccine out there, and then we still have to continue to observe for things that simply, for example, may have been just too rare for us to uh, reasonably observe within a randomized uh, controlled uh, trial. So that's kind of part of what is 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 playing out. I think the the companies have done their best to uh, to get things through the the trial stage, but now unfortunately in the case of AstraZeneca, you know, quite some time period later, we're now in a position after after vaccinating about 20 million people in in Europe to be seeing that there's a very small number of people that have had uh, a clot and, and a serious complication. And that's unfortunate, but at the same time, I think we have to recognize that uh, we had benefits in terms of getting a lot of people uh, vaccinated and safe uh, at the same time. And I had heard that London had gone through where the UK, they've had the most aggressive vaccination program for the first time in many uh, months, I believe. Uh, they've had uh, zero deaths uh, from, from COVID. Um, so those are the things that we're all trying to do to create the safest uh, system possible. It's part of the science for the first time in many uh, months, I believe. Uh, they've had uh, zero deaths 
from from COVID. Um, so those are the things that we're all trying to do to create the safest uh, system possible. It's part of the scientific process of trying to move our society forward. Yeah, that was really well explained. I think a big mis- miscommunication that people are still not quite getting is because of this rare type of plot, they maybe don't understand what it is or how it works. So could you explain the type of clot that the AstraZeneca vaccine seems to be causing um, and biologically kind of walk us through what that is? So at first, the reports that we got were that there were uh, that there were blood clots that were happening, and we didn't have uh, much more detailed information. And that's why I and many other scientists thought, well, you know, if you actually look at the number of blood clots that are occurring, they're actually no different than what you would expect occurring at any random moment in time in a in a given population. Um, it's only very, very recently that we now have seen some um, very unusual and rare type of blood clots. So CSVT, cerebrosinus venous thromboembolism, is a clot that forms in the veins that run in your brain and kind of drain the blood uh, from the brain and bring it back to, to, to the heart. And this is an extremely rare form. Most of the time you hear, oh, I got a blood clot in my leg. Maybe it went to my lung. Those are the ones that are we hear more commonly about. This is an extremely rare form. And what's also come to light very recently is that it seems to be triggered by uh, some kind of very rare immune reaction where an antibody that, that has created uh, at, at some point um, latches onto a protein called platelet factor four, and then kind of the two of them kind of then send a message to the platelets, you know, start clotting. Um, and then the next thing you know, you find these clots appearing in strange places, such as in in, in the part that's uh, draining blood in the in, in the in the brain, and that's essentially what we've now uh, uncovered. It's a very small uh, number. It mostly affects those under age fifty-five. There, it looks like it's more likely to be in in, in women. And now, just in this this week, we've had a recommendation to halt vaccinations with AstraZeneca uh, under age uh, fifty-five. Uh, um, that's unfortunate that this is occurring. Keep in mind that uh, the risk, even for that age group, was small. I calculated that it was about the same risk of being hit by a car as a pedestrian in Toronto and still not as much of a risk as just generally driving you know, in, in the course of a year in, in anywhere in Canada. That's the kind of level of risk that we are, are talking about. So if it's any consolation to the public, our public health experts, the, our National Advisory of, uh, Committee on Immunizations is doing everything that I, I think it's doing everything it can to keep people safe and, and not dismissing even these types of rare risks out of, out of hand. They're taking them all seriously. Yeah. And I think maybe because people are witnessing the scientific process unfold, it's probably really frustrating and confusing for them. Because normally what people aren't aware of is that these vaccine trials happen over multiple years, kind of behind closed doors. And if this rare clotting event was seen previously, like prior to a pandemic, it would have shut down a trial, they would have investigated and then maybe continued or not continued the trial. But it wouldn't be global news every day. 
And I think that makes it even harder for scientists and people that are in, you know, epidemiology and public health to really communicate the safety and efficacy of these vaccines, especially because it's human nature to want certainty when it comes to medical decisions. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we are watching the the scientific process uh, unfold and and I can I can sympathize that it's difficult for for people that may not have been exposed. I mean, I think as as human beings we all like to have a certain degree of certainty. And of course, if we had you know, a, a clear yes or no answer to a lot of life's questions, life would be a lot easier rather than maybe and it depends and here's the risk. And and that's just naturally challenging for us to, to process. I'm sure it's frustrating when the public sees that, you know, in one moment, you know, we have a particular recommendation, but then, you know, the, the next moment, the recommendation uh, changes. But that's part of the scientific process. We take the information that we have, we act on it, we do more trials, we do more study, we find out more information, we learn from that, and then we move on. But each time we do that, we get better and better and better and safer and safer and safer at the things that we are uh, are doing. And I guess if I were to try to explain this to the public that... Is, is still uncomfortable with this? It might sound, sound something like that. You know, we're in Canada. Let's talk about hockey. If you were a hockey coach and you had a goalie on net, I mean, you look at their stats and you say, oh, this guy's got a, you know, a great, you know, goals against average. I'm going to put him in. But you can observe that goalie over time. And at some point, they're going to have a, you know, they, you know, they may have a bad streak or they, they may, you know, other players have figured out their style and 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 they're getting lots of goals. At some point, you're gonna you take that information and you're gonna pull the goalie. You're gonna put somebody else in 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 net, and that's kind of analogous to what we're trying to do with our uh, with our recommendations. I think the worst thing that we as scientists would have been would have done would be to say, okay, we made this recommendation. The data shows otherwise, but we don't want to change that because we don't want to embarrass. We don't want to be embarrassed or we don't want to uh, you know, upset the public. That would be a terrible thing to do. We're much better off by changing our, our recommendations to fit the, the, the situation in the same way that if you had a bad goalie in net, you know, you wouldn't just keep him there uh, indefinitely. I think that's a great Canadian analogy and probably something that's going to resonate with a lot of people. Um, I think over the past year, we've seen really great leadership from people like yourself, uh, David Fisman, Ryan Imgrund um, in Ontario, just these really big, powerful voices in the media that are being vulnerable. And you guys are crunching the numbers and you give us the information as it is when it happens. But you know, if something changes two weeks later, you aren't afraid to say, hey, this isn't right anymore. The data's changed, my opinion has changed, and this is what I think moving forward. I think it's been a really crazy year for people in the public eye that way. It, it is crazy, and and I think we all struggle with that. And I, I do have this crazy hope, and I hope I'm not too optimistic, but I do hope that the more we explain our thinking behind, you know, recommendations, uh, 
the more that we let people know that you know what this is really 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 complicated there's like 15 there's there's no to 15 there's hundreds of different things to consider and balance as they're trying to make the right recommendations and we're all carefully thinking about this and you know that might change my i hope it's not an equal but my hope is that this will be one way to 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 build a greater degree of trust between the scientific community and, and the public. With my last Twitter post, I did do something that was a bit of an experiment. I made a point of responding to every single comment on LinkedIn or, or Twitter that people had uh, sent to me, regardless of you know their position or title uh, or, or where they're from. Um, if they took had the courtesy of reading what I had to say, then they deserved a personalized response. Some of them were quite sharp comments, to, to say the least. Uh, some of them used profound language, and I told them I'll reply to it if you take that, you know, that that that, that swear <laughs> word out. And they actually did, and we actually ended up having a not bad, you know, civil conversation. And I was actually kind of encouraged by that experience um, because I think people do. I, I hope people want to have trust in, in our leaders. And, you know, I mean, leadership in general, the quote unquote, the elites, the, the people with knowledge. I mean, I think they're, they're, there's a broader trend of, of, of distrust, which is really distressing uh, to me. And uh, I wish there are ways that we could contribute to, to rebuilding that trust because you can't have a functioning society without that uh, level of trust. So, so that's what I've been trying and experimenting with in my, my own little way to see if by taking these steps, and for me, by putting out on social media, you know, a revision that, you know what, that earlier analysis I did, you know, um, now we've got to change that. Um, and, and here's why. And here's the incredible, here's the detailed thinking why. I hope by going through that process that people will have a greater understanding of what scientists are, are trying to do and grapple with and ultimately have greater trust in, in what we do. I think a lot of students are probably going to go onto your Twitter and LinkedIn now and leave you some comments. So be prepared for that. I guess in terms of the AstraZeneca vaccine for under 55 and specifically women, could you speak to why women might be more at risk than men and maybe why they chose to hold this vaccine for both genders? The answer is, I don't think we have enough information. And I imagine the groups at, uh, at the National Advisory Committee are erring on the side of caution. One thing I did look do through, uh, thanks to Google Translate, I actually spent about two hours on the Norwegian Institute of Public Health's website trying to sift through some of their data. And interestingly, for whatever reason, the under 65 group that was vaccinated in Norway, about uh, 75% of them were were women, which then made me realize, yes, a lot of the cases are are women, but we can't at this point rule out the possibility that there's a risk in men uh, as well. That's totally fair. I guess for people that are eligible for the AstraZeneca vaccine, would you recommend it? So I'm going to, I'm going to approach that question not from i'm going to i'm going to put aside the fact that the company in my opinion and, and you know has probably done a terrible job of communication and i think we could spend a whole show talking about that. <laughs> yeah their pr um, strategies are not the best uh, for sure yeah i'm going to put all of that aside and I'm going to approach this as just purely from, you know, what are the odds of option A versus option uh, B? 
And I calculated that given the fact that we that the virus is rampant now in Ontario, that the um, case fatality rate for people in in in, in my age group and myself and my wife is you know around two two percent, and we've given all of that, I have a far higher rate of dying from COVID over the next month if I were to wait until I got the vaccine of my choice compared to what is what looks like a very, very small risk of contracting this rare condition. So just so yeah, as a rough ballpark in Norway, um, it looks like the chance of death is about one in 30,000 for those that are, um, let's say, under, uh, and, and we're talking mostly people under, under 55. In the UK, which has uh, has the, like the a huge the most most experience of any country you're looking at about you know 5 in 11 million so basically 1 in 2 million uh, chance and that was a predominantly older population so if i look at the odds for somebody of my uh, age group it's dangerous right now to delay vaccine even for a month so I can I can I can say, you know, if this was me, I've already had my vaccine, but my closest family members have not. And our view is, you know, we should go for it. We're playing the odds and we're far better off getting the first available vaccine, including AstraZeneca over age of 55. OK, and I guess we've already kind of talked about this, but do you think that AstraZeneca could have handled their public relations a bit differently? Or do you think that they still kind of have a chance at saving their public relations. The biggest concern for me as someone in public health, and I'm sure you share this as well, is that this is really increasing vaccine hesitancy the more that it's portrayed in the media as a really high risk. That's a great question. And it's difficult at, at this point. I mean, there were issues early on about them not reporting in a timely fashion about some of the potential complications during the trials, which turned out to be uh, not an issue, but just the fact that they weren't as transparent as they could have been at, at that point was one miscue. And then very recently, they, as you, as you all heard, they, they quoted some data saying their efficacy was actually better, but it was they were criticized for releasing um, uh, out of date uh, uh, data so I don't have a I don't have a recipe for for AstraZeneca but I'll tell you what my recipe has been uh, when I t- when I talk to people about this risk is that I say you know what then a day I respect whatever choice you make I'm not going to throw around nastier mean language to people that might not uh, disagree with a choice that I would personally make I'm still going to urge people and strongly encourage people uh, to, you know, for example, take the first available vaccine. And I'm just going to ask people, you know, here are the facts. If, and this is what I just calculated last night, um, if you're age 65 in Ontario, you have a risk of getting infected and dying in the next month of one in 3,500. Wow. And uh, that's really high. And that's the cost of waiting uh, for for a month. And compared to that, what I just said earlier, you know, risks of around one in two million in the UK for you know for this complication. You know, th- those are the facts. That's that's the best information that we have at this point. That may change tomorrow. 
I can't guarantee you that, but that's the best information I have today. So all I ask you to do is to look at those facts and make your best decision uh, on that. And if you decide, you know, make a different choice than what I would you know, for, for some reason that you, you, you hold important, that's your choice. I'm going to respect that. I'm not going to denigrate that. I'm just going to ask that uh, you listen to the facts that I've uh, prepared. And I hope that help, helps you all make a, a, an informed decision. Yes, absolutely. And then you are a doctor working frontline. And I think people are just really curious, you know, cases in Ontario are ramping up. We're seeing these variants really prominent. And I think I saw a statistic last week or the week before that the variants are over 50% of the cases in Ontario right now. So what do you think the public needs to do to stop this kind of spread? Um, There's a lot of mixed messaging um, from government leaders and public health officials. There's this color coding zone system in Ontario that doesn't make a lot of sense for people. So what are some, you know, things that you would recommend to people right now if they are wanting to really halt the spread? And um, I think this might take us back to the beginning of the pandemic, some of the recommendations that you might have. I think it's stick to the basics, um, avoid going out, um, avoid uh, interactions, uh, use a face mask, wash your hands, maintain physical distance, and really just stick with the basics until you can get vaccinated and for at least a couple of weeks after you're vaccinated since it takes time for your body to develop immunity. And I think that's the most important message for for the public. Uh, If I can sneak in a message for the government, I mean, I guess uh, I am like many others concerned about the mixed message about opening right when we're in the midst of, of, of a peak. But there's a lot of basics that I worry that we've forgotten about in management. One is just enforcement of our physical distancing and mask uh, use in, in, in public places. I, you know, when I've gone out and picked up things at the grocery or, 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 or wherever, I'm estimating about an 85% compliance rate with things like physical distancing and, and face mask use. And you know, we're at the university, 85%, oh, that's that, that's an A, isn't it? <laughs> but the problem is COVID is a really hard marker. You know, that's just not good enough. Flip it around. It's a 15% error rate. And that's enough for the virus to go to town on us. And other things like our quarantine measures after after being out of the country three days. Well, I'm sorry, but, you know, the peak 50% of the cases don't uh, declare themselves until, uh, until day five. So why three days? So there's all kinds of things where basics of how, how we manage, you know, contact tracing, lab tests testing and making sure we have a super fast uh, turnaround um, and enforcement of these things. These are all things that we've not clearly not done a good enough uh, job and could have prevented us from getting to where we are. And it's not too late to start uh, doing a better job at all those things. Absolutely. And I think a big sentiment uh, around people in my age group right now is just exhaustion with this pandemic, the burnout that we are experiencing is unprecedented uh, as you know, everything's unprecedented over the past year, but it's really tiring. And we had the anniversary a couple of weeks ago and this third wave in Canada is really brutal. So an analogy that I use um, for this kind of burnout and just something that helps me think clearer when I get really fed up with public health measures is I think everyone's had that moment in the past couple of weeks of just wanting it to kind of be over. Um, is, you know, if someone my age in their mid-20s presented to a hospital with really exacerbated COVID symptoms and they are as full as they are right now and they are straining to really bear the burden of this pandemic, um, who are they going to prioritize? You know, are they going to prioritize someone who's 70, 70 plus? 
uh, or look at someone who's 29 with a, a long life ahead of them. And from my understanding, we are getting to that point in our hospitals where these conversations are happening. Uh, and I don't think there's enough media coverage around that because that is enough to keep me home. No, knowing that information and knowing that if I got COVID and I got sick, I would take life-saving care from someone older than me just because of my age. And I think that that's really important for people to understand is that what is going on right now in Ontario and in other parts of Canada is that we're at a breaking point and it really needs to be um, almost more strict as far as restrictions and, you know, social distancing, mask wearing than it was last March. It is terrifying. That was the conversation we were having a year ago. And I was involved in one project we were trying to, with working with um, some engineering colleagues that were trying to develop a, a very simple ventilator that could be assembled within a week um, on short notice in case we ever did uh, hit uh, surge. If the surge led to our using up all of our all of our ventilators, uh, I hope we never get to, uh, to, to that point. But uh, from what I understand, I think we're going to have to start preparing about the possibility of questions like uh, like that. I do hope that, you know, now that we're having this, these types of conversations that will encourage all of us, the general public, to be much more vigilant and that we can prevent ourselves from getting to that uh, position. One of the things that I worry about just as much is that it'd be terrible for us to displace, once again, like we did last year, all the patients that other need uh, urgent surgery. Because, for example, as you remember, many of our vented beds were um, reserved for people potentially with uh, COVID. One thing I have noticed working in the emergency department is I've, I've seen several instances of patients arriving with really advanced tumors where I ask myself, why am I an emergency doctor seeing this or diagnosing this for the first time? How did we get to that point? And that's a terrible secondary consequence of our, of our pandemic. Yeah, I think that's something that is often pushed to the back burner is that other health crises are still happening in a pandemic. It's not just about the capacity for COVID in these hospitals. It's about capacity for chemotherapy, capacity for emergency surgeries, or even scheduled surgeries. Like people have really been putting off um, elective surgeries for a long time because of COVID. Um, people are still having babies. You know, all of these other really necessary healthcare services have just been kind of pushed aside because of COVID and how much it's been in our hospitals recently. And that's a huge stress on our healthcare system. Yeah, and that's a stress on our health system, and and even and things like our mental health supports or, or other social supports. I mean, I've had instances where you know things like shelters or or other you know other places in in some areas were were closed. Um, and then I'm less left as a, as a doctor. You know, how am I going to help this person? You know, I I don't even know where to where to refer this person uh, now. And we spend time scrambling to try to find a find a solution. So we, I, I, I've seen situations like that as well. And I mean, that's a tough one. I mean, yet, I guess the positive thing is there are certain, certainly certain things that we used to do in medicine, which could have easily been done online and we never got around to doing that. So there, there, is, there is an upside with that, is, is that now the idea of having a quick check-in with your with your doctor, where you you don't need to be seen physically, can uh, can happen. So that's a that's a positive benefit. But you know, as you say, there are still situations where you really do need to be with somebody face to face in order to to help them or figure out what's going on. 
Okay. And the last thing that I really wanted to ask you about is we know the vaccine rollout is coming. It is painstakingly slow in Ontario. And for our listeners, please check the bio link for this episode because we will be putting lots of vaccine resources for you there. But when do you see vaccinations really kind of getting to the point that we have, let's say 50% of the population vaccinated? Um, do you think it's reasonable to think that we're going to be returning to things like in-person work and school in September? Or do you think that maybe it's a bit too soon to know? I, uh, I think there's just too much uncertainty right now for, for someone like me to really give an accurate prediction uh, on that. I certainly hope that that would be the case. I hope these recent age restrictions on AstraZeneca are not going to cause too much of a, uh, an overall delay to our vaccination uh, rollout. But I think there's just too many variables uh, happening uh, right now. I wish I, I wish I had a, a better answer. I, I, I'm certainly, certainly going to hope for the best, but, uh, <laughs> but plan for the worst. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and for all of the work that you're doing to put these amazing graphics on Twitter and LinkedIn for everyone regarding the AstraZeneca vaccine. Can people just find you on Twitter? Um, could you just let us know your handle and kind of where we can find you online? I'm fairly sure that your Twitter is at Dr. Ben Chan, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, that's right. Yes. Uh, uh, Dr. Uh, underscore Ben Chan. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. And thank you for listening to the rest of this episode. Um, please remember there are those vaccine resources in this episode's bio, as well as all over our social medias on Twitter and Instagram. Um, we hope to have you back listening to us soon and have a great week.